0: Hi Eric. Hi Aaron, how are you? Um, I'm excited. I actually wanted to start with the heartwarming stuff.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) The opposite of how it is in David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism.
0: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So in 1964, right, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson was elected president of the United States. Yes, he was. And quoting from David O. McKay, The Rise and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, Chapter 13, Politics and the Church. It said, three US flags flew over the Capitol during the inauguration. One went to Johnson, another to Vice President Hubert Humphrey, and the third to David O. McKay, President of our church. How about that?
1: Only three. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah, that, I was really surprised. I think that's where I realized that their friendship was really genuine. Yeah. Because there's no real political reason to send David on the K a flag.
0: Right. Or to fly a flag above the inauguration just for him.
1: Yeah. That's, that's um, remarkable.
0: Um, um, yeah. I mean, it was awesome. And in fact, not only that, but uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. Is it B? I think it's a B. It is a B. It's got to be a B.
1: Yes. Because he, um, he is a B.
0: He invited uh, Motab <laughs> to sing. He did. The Mormon oh, tabernacle I, choir
1: I meant to look up and see how many um, choir, or how many inaugurations the choir performed for. It was a little controversial when the church sent them for trump 's inauguration We uh-huh. send them for everyone who asks. Um, I remember Reagan had asked, but but that was the last time I thought about it was in two thousand and sixteen,
0: and I failed to look it up and see who else they 'd performed for,
1: but Johnson, so at least one Democrat
0: <laughs> there you go um in fact uh utah voted democrat for that election mainly because of um well mainly because of mckay and their friendship um even he even wanted he so there's this great quote about the choir right so they needed 300 seats but the press would have to be kicked out for them to get it right (laughs) a lot of press yeah the president is reported to have told the standing committee insulting language that he had invited the tabernacle choir and he wasn't going to have half a choir he wanted all 300 no matter how many seats it cost okay. <laughs> it was great so and the reason why it was because of this friendship they had this good relationship and they talked to each other by phone um, president uh, johnson would call president mckay just to talk just to hash out ideas just to enjoy company, they visited each other, um, seemed to be, like, awesome. And I guess the reason I wanted to bring it up was because um, it's just a nice story of, of politics, and which is what we're talking about today, talking about politics we're in the talking church. about politics, because
1: and, nobody's sick of talking about politics right now.
0: Well, it does seem to be the season. <laughs> it is the season, yeah. um, It seems to be the best time to do it, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, uh, let's see. If you, I suppose if you get nothing else out of this um, uh, podcast episode today, it should be that um, you should vote and you shouldn't mail in your ballot anymore. You should take it because it's too late. You need to go vote in person or take your ballot into a dropout box.
1: Yeah, it depends a little state by state, but um, I thought Kavanaugh's opinion was remarkable this week. Like, it's, Yes. it's um, I'm boggled absolutely boggled by what he, what his decision was, what the way he wrote it.
0: Yeah. And we're allowed to talk about this stuff because it's politics week. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 12 of Damon and and the rise of modern Mormonism is called communism. Well, it's a
1: little more than that. It's confrontation with communism.
0: That's right. Confrontation with communism. It is very
1: confrontational. Mm -hmm. Um, Although there are no actual communists. Not really. (laughs) That's true. There are some across the ocean, but all the confrontation with communism, it's not happening with actual communists. So
0: I found this chapter. Well, you describe it. How did you describe it?
1: Chapter 12, the communism chapter.
0: Yeah. um, I found it
1: depressingly relevant to us right now. Mm -hmm. And it just really got under my skin. I think it might have no matter what, but it really did because it's 2020. Mm -hmm. And it also explained to me a lot about how, or rather it explained to me a lot about why people felt the way they did about president Benson. Um, because most of the everything actually that happens in this chapter is before I come to know president Benson, I am not aware of president Benson before he becomes the prophet. Um, I'm what eight or something when that happens and I do not have the entire quorum of the 12 memorized. Um, And so I'm not familiar with his past as a rabble rouser, as a troublemaker, mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a village burner. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not really aware of the controversy and the nervousness people have of him until
0: much later. Um,
1: but now I understand why they felt that way.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so we're going to be talking a lot about um, uh, Ezra Taft Benson today and uh, about President McKay and about... Dwight Eisenhower, TB <laughs> Brown, John KB F. Kennedy, Brown, John F. Kennedy. Past the thousands, Aaron. <laughs> what a what a strange chapter! Mm-hmm. I didn't expect this when we embarked on this journey. Oh, what Dude. did you Go.
1: expect?
0: Do you remember? I, I, I was ex- I I was I was expecting to talk about things like correlation, and you know, like we did, and the, the oh, temple you mean building and stuff. The book. Yeah, that that's we what I'm saying. these
1: chapters specifically. Yeah. Our, at the end of our last episode
0: yeah so i didn't really know what um i was going to get out of this and uh wow what a rabbit hole this uh thing on communism is but i agree with you it just
1: fictional white rabbit and not the uh delightful bunnies of nature
0: that's right (laughs) um yeah so let's start with some definitions okay oh okay let's do it um, the reason why it's important to do some definitions is because communism and the church, well, they kind of go way back. <laughs> <laughs> so in in um, in 1830, right? In the 1830s, I
1: remember it well.
0: Yep. Uh, on February 9th, 1831, 30, Joseph Smith received a revelation. And that re- revelation detailed the law of consecration. Communist. <laughs> Wait, are you calling me one? <laughs> Just to green
1: that up, I think you're a little suspect.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, so tell me about the law of consecration.
1: Well, um, if we were in Sunday school right now, uh, a gentleman who's probably about 58 probably, um, at least that's how I imagine him, so maybe he's more like 78 now, mm-hmm. would raise his hand and say, well, but it's not like communism. Because <laughs> you get to own your own stuff and you agree to do it and there's freedom or something like that. There are variations yeah. on
0: the theme." Let's, let's help out our fellow um, non-member brethren and sister that listen to the show. What it, but what actually was it? So it was
1: a, okay, so Aaron, you've heard of Zion, where, uh, you know, the city that was taken up into God. Sorry, did you mean Zion? No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway. <laughs> That's the matrix. <laughs> um, well, whoa, no, whoa, you totally knocked me off my, okay. So one <laughs> of the things about Zion, one of the things about people who are so good that God walks among them, is they share all things in common. There are no rich and there are no poor. Like That is a, that is an idea that is in the past. It's um, a very
0: celestial idea as well, yes. right?
1: And uh, I read an article this week. I didn't read the whole thing because uh, I was very busy this week with the new issue of Ariantum, But um, I read the first half because I was just curious what the thesis was. And the thesis was exactly what I would have guessed it was. And it warned that... Um, kicking Trump out of office next week is no guarantee that America will get back to normal and that we won't have the violence continuing and we won't continue marching towards more violence. And their point was that in their research, it seems that the number one predictor of social unrest and civil war and other everything in between is economic inequality. There's nothing inherently um, friendly or societally helpful or there's there's no nothing good about income inequality and the more unequal it is the more likely we are to have something like the rise of nazism or the um the great depression like a lot of horrible things get started because of income inequality and scripture says that the people of zion they had all things in common and god walked with them so the law of consecration is a law You're talking
0: about the, city, the people of enoch
1: that's right the people of enoch um not whatever city of zion and there's probably a dozen of them in the united states in different states but ultimately this is the goal is for us to be have this sort of radical equality that is associated with christianity um, So what
0: happened to the city of enoch
1: got taken into heaven that's right there was no reason to stay here anymore because they'd mastered it And that's why it's very important to um, vote for capitalism, not for socialism. (laughs) (laughs) Lindsay was just reading uh, a new post on design mom's blog and somebody, I forget who it was design, it couldn't have been design mom, she's in France right now, but somebody in one of the comments said she saw someone at her, in her church parking lot with a bumper sticker that said something along the lines of, um, if Jesus were here, he would um, drive an SUV, he would, I've, there were, there were three things he would do. And then he would vote for Trump as the, is the fourth one. Um, I see. Cause Jesus loves capitalism, which uh-huh. I, a close reading of the new Testament allows no, I mean, where's, Ca- okay. It's, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Like one thing that uh, in seminary last week, we were talking, we, we made it into third Nephi and we were talking about the differences between the sermon in the Mount and the sermon on the temple. And one of the key differences is just, it's a different, it's a different rhetorical situation, right? Like Jesus in the old world is some poor guy out of the desert who has ragged clothes and probably lice, right? Jesus comes to bountiful and he says almost the same words, but he comes down from heaven in a beam of light. He is a God. You hear things differently when a God is saying them versus some prophet you're kind of fond of. Um, And so when Jesus is talking in Judea, he's, talking to poor people almost exclusively and the idea of what to do with money the stuff Jesus says about money is purely theoretical for most of them most of them don't have anything that's not really true in the new world like um, some of the people were elites it's it's a different mix of people who hear him in the new world and and all of a sudden when Jesus um, is saying some of the radical things he says about wealth for instance give it away it probably sounds different, and maybe you need to hear it from a god. Sorry, I'm sorry. Are we against capitalism in this podcast? I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> I gotta say that the Trump years have radicalized
0: me leftward uh-huh. more than anything else could have. So um, yeah, it's interesting because I know I have a lot of friends. I have several friends who listen to this podcast who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, right? And I don't know which, some of them, I don't know which way they're gonna vote in this election. Some of them have written in others of them, like they didn't want to vote at all. <laughs> they live in states where um, it's oh, not- It doesn't matter <laughs> anyway. The, the, yeah. yeah, which is annoying. There's yeah. a whole nother discussion <laughs> about electoral colleges. Yes. I don't um,
1: think they're in David on the case. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but uh, so personally, I'm, tr- I'm trying to avoid a statement like vote for X on the show, but I don't know yeah. if I'm going to be able to.
1: Well, I, normally I see I have always tried to appear oh. to be politically neutral. Right. But yeah. but, the, but the rise of Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016 has changed the rules. You can't pretend that they're equal anymore. You can't pretend that both sides are more or less the same. It's it's I think it is immoral to pretend that anymore.
0: Uh, Face and hat is not affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
1: (laughs) That's right. Or any particular political party. I don't know about you, Aaron, but I have never been registered with a political party ever in my life. I don't know if Um, I am or not. Oh, well. (laughs) Um, I think I am. (laughs) Well, California, the most popular party after the Democrats in California is no party affiliation. So Uh, so you you probably belong to the same non-party that I do. (laughs)
0: Republicans pull third in California. Well, so what's, the, so what's the difference then between the law of consecration and communism? Well, you know, I kind of hate the question. Wait, what's the law of consecration? Oh, right. We said it already. We, we'd we give up everything. That. But it's specific. There's actually. Um, well, kind of. Because the law of consecration and the United
1: Order, we often conflate um, because they're yeah. similar ideas. They both come out of the teachings of Joseph Smith, but they're not identical. And and this gets The United
0: Order was questions. practiced, right? Yes. In like the 1830s the law of consecration is briefly. literally
1: you covenant to give everything to god and his church everything um all yeah. of it and maybe he doesn't get around to taking it from you but that is the promise you have made it is like young man go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me that is that is the promise it's just nobody's um you know jesus hasn't sent me a bill yet so yeah. I don't really know how I'll react when that moment comes because it hasn't happened.
0: All right. So what about the United Order then?
1: Uh, the United Order had more specific rules set up. Um, it was, you give everything to the bishop, I believe, and then he redistributes it according to your needs. And um, And, you know, nobody else needs your pictures of grandma. So you'll get those back, right? Like it's And there were a few communities where it lasted decades, but ultimately it's something that only worked when the number of people never broke three digits. Mm, You can't do it with strangers. You really have to know everyone intimately to pull it off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there still was this sense of ownership, right? You didn't have private. It's not, they didn't abolish private property. You still owned things. Right. Right. So, okay, fine. Um, Kind of sounds like communism.
1: Yeah, and that's why I hate the question, because um, communism has a lot of different variations. like is modern Chinese communism? is that what Marx was talking about? I don't think so. Um, but they're all you know spelled the same way, and so the question of like, is something communism or not becomes it becomes a, a rabbit hole, if you will in which okay, you well, can I, argue definitions forever and never reach conclusions because there are too many different possible definitions well, to be addressed. Let's
0: let's let's stop some of the Mormons that are listening to our show from devolving into utter apoplexy and tell them <laughs> what we really think, <laughs> which is that communism and the united order are not the same thing.
1: No, obviously not. <laughs> They're obviously not, but it does it does raise the interesting question of um, just like how Latter-day Saints over the course of the 20th century became the most rabid enforcers of like the nuclear family. When, Why? Well, I don't know, but maybe it's because we were trying to prove we were normal after the polygamy thing. Maybe maybe our our deep and um, almost pathological hatred of communism uh, that developed in the 20th century is related because we saw that it looked a little bit like something we used to do and we're trying to be normal now.
0: So, let's listen to um, a statement from nineteen in nineteen forty-two. Okay, right, and this is um,
1: this is nine from years the church for David O. McKay becomes the prophet. But I believe was yeah, in the first presidency then.
0: Um, I'm not sure. Is it probably. the first
1: presidency statement or just a?
0: This is, a, this is it, on Wikipedia it says the church issued the following statement.
1: Mm.
0: Okay, it's, it's well I can follow I can follow the link and figure it out. It's fine. Okay, this was this was issued in general conference by J. Reuben Clark,
1: who was I believe also in the first presidency
0: Yeah, here it is communism and all other similar isms bear. No relationship (laughs) Whatever to the United order They are merely the clumsy counterfeits which Satan always devises of the gospel plan the United order leaves every man free to choose his own religion as his conscience directs communism destroys god's man's god-given free agency the united order glorifies it or glories it united latter-day saints cannot be true to their faith and lend aid encouragement or sympathy to any of these false philosophies the principal complaint that david o mckay had with communism was agency
1: yeah and he
0: was not a fan of of communism
1: No, he, um, I mean, he wasn't off the deep end, but he had very strong feelings about it.
0: In fact, In 1936, they even had a stronger statement, right? Communism being thus hostile to loyal American citizenship and incompatible with true church membership of necessity. No loyal American citizen and no faithful church member can be a communist. So the reason, again, the region he didn't like it was agency. So let's just state briefly the doctrine of agency, right? Which is the ability to choose. And um, so fundamental in man's eternal progress is his inherent right to choose, right? This is quoting McKay, okay. that the Lord would defend it even at the price of war. Right? And this, is, this was in, something in relation to World War II at that point. So, the the right to choose. I mean, we believe in the church in this pre-existence, right, in which a war in heaven was fought over agency, the ability to choose your own um, destiny, as it were, right? And I think you and I would both agree that communism, as it was implemented in the Cold War, really did take away agency from people.
1: It was largely a mess, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. I'm not here to defend um, East Germany or anything like that.
0: Okay, so, so so, what happened that was so crazy in the 1950s and 60s with well, communism and uh, some of our church leaders?
1: You know, it's really hard. I'm not an expert, and there are a million books on this. Red. Go read a book if you care. But it's um, <laughs> hard to know how things got started, but it's easy to see how things snowballed to the point where now um, there are literally members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who don't think that the government should pay for food stamps because it takes away people's agency and will send our country on a direct route to destruction. Um, Can I quote a a president of the United States that Brother McKay never met, or would that be inappropriate?
0: Uh, That would be fine. All right, so this is Jimmy Carter. Okay.
1: Uh, Jimmy Carter said, if you don't want your tax dollars to help the poor, then stop saying you want a country based on Christian values because you don't.
0: Ah, that's great.
1: So there's, there's a difference between, um, a communist society as described in these statements, which, um, sucks away people's agency and turns them into automatons of the state. There's a difference between that and building a society that's based on our values. And if our values have anything to do with the New Testament, then it does have something to do with redistributing wealth from the rich to the poor. That's, you just can't walk through the New Testament without realizing that. Um, I, I, feel, I feel like that's a really difficult to, argument to have, that, that the New Testament is not in favor of taking care of the poor. And you can make the argument, I guess, that this is not government's job and people, it seems like all the weight of that is based on Jesus saying, render unto under Caesar, under Caesar what is Caesar's." It seems like that statement is the entire reason, I'm, I'm overstating things, but um, why government shouldn't help poor people. But I just, government is the people. That's something we as Americans believe, right? Like when the time of human events, it becomes necessary for us to kick the King of George, King George out and start our own governments because we, the people, um, you don't govern because you feel like governing, you govern because you have the consent of the governed, and so government can only do what we the people want. And if we the people believe in good things, the government ought to do good things. I wonder how many people have said they can't listen to me now and have quit this episode. I was not <laughs> intending to get this rabble rousery, but I've, but um, it's it's almost the election, and we have had a madman in the White House. Yes, those are my opinions. Um, I look forward to uh, some some real science being done on his brain but (laughs) so it can move beyond opinion but anyway (laughs) on the bright side can i say something nice about trump sure i just read an article in the latest issue of wired about um cyber command which is i do not know enough about um the state of cyber warfare right now to really know what the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do is it does seem that um no matter how you feel about the escalation of cyber warfare under trump The way he has, um, the people he's put in charge are thoughtful and good and decent people. So fingers crossed.
0: Yeah, I mean, here's the thing about, my my general opinion about politics, right, is that most people are good people, right? And that most people are trying to do good things.
1: Most people, yeah, I totally agree.
0: But there are some real disagreements about how to do it some people really fundamentally believe that the best way to handle the poor is in some is um in a trickle down manner right yeah and then others think that that has never worked <laughs> and that the the yeah. only way to help the poor is through wealth redistribution in a forced manner
1: right, right. and then uh, and that, that's the problem with this discussion is this idea that somehow it's a dichotomy that there's only two options which is right. obvious nonsense.
0: Right, but it's nicely polarizing. So let's talk about polarization because I think that that is a fundamental topic from this chapter. From both right? of the chapters, really. Right, polarization is a great way to fill seats and it's a great way to sell product and it's a great way to get dollars, but boy, is it bad for us. Yeah. <laughs> boy, is it bad to be polarized. Um, there were three events that happened to President Benson that really polarized him. Not Benson, uh, President McKay. President McKay, yeah. On the subject of com- con- of communism, the first was in the 40s. Okay, when he was in charge of a bunch of social, a bunch of uh, missions, right? And reading generally from the book, um, the Iron Curtain began to choke off church activities in Czechoslovakia and the only mission headquartered in there. In a move that forced the church hands, Czech police arrested two missionaries earlier in 1950, alleging they had entered a restricted area. The missionaries were held incommunicado for three weeks, and it gradually became clear that their release was contingent upon the church closing the mission. This quid pro quo was a bitter pill for McKay to swallow. And a month after closing the mission, he remarked in his April 1950 conference, every member of the church should take a lesson from what has occurred in that communistically dominant land. Okay, so two other events. One was uh, uh, the invasion of South Korea by communist North Korea. And with that happened, that meant the draft happened, which meant that we had a big reduction in the missionary force mm-hmm. and we had to preemptively abandon um a hong the hong kong mission right um so those three the preemptive abandonment of the chinese mission the reduction by two-thirds of the missionary force and this event in czechoslovakia they were um the the book calls these events assaults on his belief because of communism right yeah and then he became prep when he became president in his first interview he warned a third world war is inevitable unless communism is soon subdued communism yields to nothing but force
1: you know i, right? I just realized because he also predicts that it will collapse right and he's right he, does. he doesn't live to see it it's he what does. 20 years after he dies right um and i just realized you know that's 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 one of the big problems with prophecy like the second coming is <laughs> too, right like you can see something's coming oh prophet but man it's usually further away than you want to believe so one of the big events of course of communism in america the one we all remember um or the two we all remember is the house on american committee and um or house on american Activities committee whatever it's called and uh, Joseph McCarthy, the senator who was interviewing people, maybe the Hollywood blacklisting, maybe that's maybe that's another one that sticks in our mind. And they all sort of get combined into the same thing. And, and they're obviously connected. Um, but America as a whole, the country, the populace, like the overreaching of Joseph McCarthy and some of those other political missteps of, of changing this monster into something it wasn't. Um, collapse, right because most people are good people. Most people can read a newspaper and understand the truth and it and it falls apart
0: completely um, So tell me I have two questions yeah. first What was he actually doing to people and second? What was this communist conspiracy that he was so worried about? Well, I mean McCarthy Believed that you know,
1: some huge percentage of government was actually run by um, lizard people who eat babies or no sorry that's QAnon. it's the same basic idea um and these communists are in everything they're secretly controlling things it won't be long till they overthrow the government and blah 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 and in the process what do you do you have to find these villains and so he pulls them in the house american an uh, american activities committee pulls them in if i'm if i got the name of that wrong i'm gonna get roasted i hope inappropriately so um But they just, they grill people and they ruin them and they ruin their reputations and they force them to turn in their friends or else they will face dire consequences. And um, after a while, it becomes obvious that there's nothing here and we're just being mean. And that's no good. And at that point, most of the country self-corrects. The fear of communism obviously doesn't go away, but people are more sensible about it. But that leaves a void for the crazy people. Which is where the John Birch Society will happily step in and and um, fill that space.
0: Okay, so I was before you go there though. Um, just it's important to note that President McKay, um, so um, McCarthy was censured. Yes. By the, the by the I guess maybe by the Senate. I believe. Or something? I believe it was by the Senate. Yes. And I, th- if I remember, the section in the chapter, an LDS um, fellow actually led the committee. Investigated. Yes,
1: which was fascinating. That was something I had never heard before.
0: Yeah. And so when was, uh, the censure was over, Arthur Watkins, uh, who's,
1: who's Arthur Watkins. There were so okay. many interesting quotations from him. Like I wrote on the, on the front page of my copy of the David O. McKay the name of his memoirs because I feel like I need to go find it after I finish this
0: book. He's, it's really great. At the end of the committee hearing, um, McKay called um, Watkins and congratulated him on the result of the censure. Um, and and Watkins said this was just awesome. And It was one of the one of the best things that happened to him. Um, so McKay was on the side of uh, most of the rest of the country yep. when they of you know this was we don't know what we're supposed to do to fight communism, okay. but this one well that was too much.
1: This, this is not right. Yeah.
0: Okay, so enter Ezra Taft Benson.
1: Yes. He's already an apostle at this point. Uh, It doesn't mention this in the book, I don't think, but he is the apostle who was sent to post-war Europe um, Mm -hmm. to help, uh, you know, to be the the point man for the church's efforts to help over there. Um, He has a connection to Europe. He'll later go back as as a mission president in Europe um, in the middle of our story. But um, for whatever reason, he... And he was political before this he was involved in um, I, I again it's not in the book and I didn't look it up but he was involved in various uh, political interests
0: before this point point. and now with this gap this whole uh, well he was the department of he was they, he was the um, agriculture secretary right
1: for for Eisenhower who became the secretary of agriculture and and an unusually um, well covered one i mm-hmm. I've read a little bit about this in the past not recently but uh, he was in the newspaper a lot more than your average Secretary of the Agriculture. Aaron, do you know who the Secretary was?
0: I was about to ask you the same I thing. No I have no idea.
1: No <laughs> idea. Can't remember the last time I saw the Secretary of Agriculture in the paper. Yeah. Um, which I guess is probably a good thing because I'm mostly aware of the secretaries that are in the process of destroying their departments. So. <laughs> so maybe maybe he's fine, <laughs> or she. I don't know. I genuinely have no idea.
0: Okay, so yes, he the stepping filling this hole of crazy people
1: yeah and um so there's this hole where mccarthy uh this gap in the in the american consciousness and uh the john birch society is born to fill that gap and um benson finds himself drawn more and more into that world especially after um eisenhower's term ended um there's a joke and i i don't remember who said it originally but but you know that um that that old story about like where do i find an honest man and like there isn't one anywhere. do you know do you know what i'm talking about here aaron um anyway it's an old i think it goes back to greece i don't know though somebody more intelligent or more well-read than me can can mention it to us but there was the joke that well now you can just send that person the man who spent his life looking for one honest man you can send him to the white house because there he is uh, uh-huh. Like, not everybody likes Eisenhower's politics, of course, but people respect him as a person. And yet the John Birch Society will eventually claim that he is a closet communist. And Ezra Taft Benson, who was his secretary of agriculture and who worked with him closely, will refuse to defend him of being, for
0: being, from being a closet communist. Um, yeah, and Dwight Eisenhower never figures out why. Yeah, he like, why did this, he like more, lamented it. Yeah,
1: he didn't know about it for a long time because he stayed completely out of politics once he left the white house but um when he did find out about it he was just mystified and, and you get the sense that his feelings were hurt
0: okay so there's something really crazy that you just said okay just that, thing? <laughs> yeah okay so this society the john birch society believed and organized like lots of people to yeah. tell everybody that Eisenhower was a communist. Well, that wasn't the, their main point, but yeah, that was that
1: was one thing they said
0: Uh-huh. They said lots of things most they are essentially the birth of of right-wing
1: Like yeah, when we think of like the far right in america politics. Um, yeah, we're thinking of the children of john birch Although I feel yeah. bad for poor, poor john birch. He had nothing to do with this
0: actually he's quoted on the wikipedia article about it as as um Somebody who knew him didn't think he'd be happy about him. Mm -hmm. So he was a guy that was shot by a communist, like in World War II or something. Yeah. So they took his, they just took his name. Well, I
1: think he was a missionary, actually. I don't think he was a soldier. Um, But anyway, yeah, he was killed by Chinese communists. And he's believed to be the the first death of the Cold War, some people say. Anyway, that's why why the society is named after him.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so they organize, they publish pamphlets they try to and they fight communism that's what they say they do that's what their goal is is to is to fight this is to fight the communist conspiracy they give talks and um you know benson says there's no other non-church organization that is doing more to help fight um communism and loves them yes and mckay loves them too but more privately (laughs) and And with more reservation,
1: especially as time goes on
0: as time goes on it gets more and more clear That it's getting crazier and crazier and McKay does start to distance himself From Benson, but the problem is that near the end of his life He was starting to you know get older, right? right? Nobody really knows Why he gave mixed messages, but he did he gave mixed signals he and so both parties the people who were against the john birch society and those that were for had quotations that they thought um uh justified their position right
1: this is a theme throughout the book and other chapters too it's not just in these chapters when mckay gets into his 90s he um he seems to lose the ability to maintain a constant stand he becomes someone who's sort of tells everybody what they want to hear and agrees with the last person you talked to. And I'm over, I'm I'm not really overstating it, but I'm, I'm saying it in a way that makes him sound completely senile. And I don't think he was, but. um, And it's also an inference that
0: doesn't appear to be directly stated in the book.
1: Yeah, it is stated a little bit more directly in an
0: earlier chapter. Ah, Have I told the story about
1: Mormon doctrine on the podcast before? No. Would you like to hear it or should we save it for a later episode? It's relevant to this.
0: We can do both.
1: Okay. That's true. What a good point, Aaron. (laughs) Um, So when Bruce R. McConkie published Mormon Doctrine, he did it without permission and he did it in a way that seemed to give the book a lot of authority. And
0: dude, I always thought it was an official reference of the church. A lot
1: of people thought so. And it's taken, I think a lot of people don't now, but I'm sure there are still some people who feel that way about it. Um, and they were not happy with it. And I forget the number, but they had a couple members of the first presidency in the corner of the 12, like go through it. And they found literally thousands of things that they did not think were correct. And, um, and David O. McKay was unhappy with it. And it was not allowed to go into, um, anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about it later, but he basically shut it down. Not as much as uh, a lot of high leadership thought he should have, but it went out of print. But then um, Bruce R. McConkie felt like it was a good book and he wanted to come back out. And late in President McKay's life, he met with him privately and left with what he claimed was permission to reprint the book anyway, you know, as he, as he pleased. And, um, and he did. And nobody was really sure what happened in that conversation because it was only the two of them. But it was that point late in McKay's life where... People sort of were able to hear whatever they wanted to hear. And and um, yeah, it's a little difficult to know what he really thought. But um, so, yeah, there are other examples of these last years of McKay's life where um, he's not always as sharp as he had been.
0: And people take advantage <sighs> of it. So, but there's enough in the early 50s, right? Towards. Oh, yeah. Earlier know, 1960, on. 1960 that is plenty of evidence that McKay um, was, was into the John Birch Society, but he did draw some hard lines against Benson. Benson tried over and over again to become an official member and a rep to the society. And not only did Benson, sorry, what should I say? Should I say Elder Benson, President Benson? Um, you know, we'll, we'll know who you the, mean. The book, its interesting. The book uses McKay and Benson right, without using any titles.
1: Yeah, it's a scholarly work. That's I, It makes sense. I mean, that's how it would normally work.
0: Are we scholarly enough to follow that
1: example? <laughs> sure, yeah. Anybody who's, <laughs> who's
0: going to be offended about that has already turned off this episode, so. <laughs> okay, so Benson, right, uh, wants, to, wants to join and c- tries over and over again. And in fact, the founder of the, of the John Birch Society, tries to get um, President McKay to let President Benson join. Yes. Right, but ben, but McKay never does, never goes quite that far. No. Um, so the chapter is pretty, ver- it's very interesting. There's lots of give and take on these, between these two men and between the other more, um, more anti uh, John Birch Society members in the quorum of the twelve in the first presidency. Right, they're try really hard to rein, um, rein President Benson in.
1: Yeah, some of them are, are quite politically liberal. There are Democrats in the first presidency. It's not it's not a question of like um, President McKay is one end of the spectrum and um, Elder Benson is the other end. No, and everybody else is in between. No, like President McKay is probably more in the middle with somebody like Q.B. Brown being further to the left and more anti-John Birch and more capable of seeing the kind of damage
0: um, that it does end up doing. So what is this damage? What were they doing? What was the society doing? Well, this is one of the reasons this chapter
1: felt so relevant is I felt like I was seeing the early days of QAnon, and I mean that really literally. There was a great article in The Atlantic earlier this year uh, about how QAnon is taking on the form of a religion, and um, it's being preached over pulpits, and there are meetings being held, and it's, it's behaving very much like a church. And that's kind of what the John Birch Society is. And, and they're both alike also in the fact that you have to believe in things without a lot of evidence, um, which makes it rather religion-like also, right? You have to believe that evil people have infiltrated the government, even though there's no good evidence of that. Um, And so I really hope that QAnon collapses in the same way, but I also kind of expect that QAnon is here to stay in one form or another, just like the John Birch Society still has a a website and you can go listen to their scholars talk about, you know,
0: how... Yeah, at the end of this chapter, you know, the book was written in 2005. It says, uh, oh man, and, you know, the John Birch Society eventually um, diminished in... In uh, popularity and mission and scope and you know now it's not a big deal Um, but I'd like to read to you a quote from (laughs) The uh, Wikipedia article on it that says the following (laughs) I I couldn't believe this when I when I read it Um, Trump confidant and long-term advisor Roger Stone said that Trump's father Fred Trump was a financier of the society and a personal friend of founder Robert Welsh. So this chain links. So unlike what our poor friends, um, Prince and Wright, who wrote this book in glorious 2005, (laughs) thought that the society had vanished, instead it has resurged. And um, there's a quote that says, Trumpism is essentially bircherism.
1: I'm on their front page right now. It says, stay informed, get involved. America needs patriots. Be part of the patriot movement to protect and restore American freedom, independence, and our God-given rights. Mm-hmm.
0: It, uh, yeah. So, so, there's, so okay. How did they actually try to affect change? Um, well,
1: you know, it's an interesting question because even at their height, they really weren't that many people, right? There were enough people that if you were heavily involved with it, you felt like everybody agreed with you, but it was never everybody. (laughs) I'm looking through my book right now. And next to my, uh, next to the margins, many times in the, in the chapter on communism, I have rolling eyes. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I mean, you have meetings, you send letters, you collect money, you, you print pamphlets. You deliver them to everyone in town. Sometimes, um, it's pretty. It's the free press.
0: It's. I mean, the answer is that it's the free press. They yeah. they tried to to publish pamphlets and they tried to, exactly. They just talked, right? Yeah. And um, they used the media that they had at the time. Right? They used phone calls, and they tried to. And they had meetings and conferences, which they brought people to um, attend. And, um, and so forth. Yeah. Did it work? Did they actually do any damage to communism?
1: No, I don't think so. I I would say it's a lot easier to say they've done damage to us.
0: Okay. So this is a direct quote from the, um, from the book under the last section in the chapter. Which and it's a great section. It says it's called the demise of communism, Mm -hmm. right? Although McKay and Benson had both been willing to go to war to fight communism the war never came Instead of going out with a bang the Soviet Union went out with a whimper collapsing in the late 1980s under its own weight With its demise communism as a successful form of government quickly became discredited throughout the world with the gradual opening of archives in the former Soviet Union and other communist states it has become apparent that some communist infiltration of US organizations and government institutions had occurred. Yet the actual threat of the communist conspiracy to the West never approached the cataclysmic dimensions of which Benson and Welsh had warned. Okay, and this is the part that really got me as I read the book. Nor, despite Welsh claims, is there any convincing evidence that the John Birch Society was effective in combating communism. It was very effective, however, in polarizing Americans, heightening political ill will and fostering an atmosphere of hate and intolerance. Welsh's attacks on Dwight Eisenhower, John Foster Doles, Martin Luther King and other individuals and institutions gradually brought discredit and disdain to himself and his organization. And although the society exists, this is the part I was mentioning. <laughs> yet long ago ceased to have significant visibility within American society. Oh, how I wish that had stayed the case. But okay, but that's the part that I thought was thought was powerful. It was very effective in polarizing Americans. Now, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of yeah. Latter-day Saints, we believe in right and wrong. Sure. True or false? Yeah, you bet. We believe in. There's a there we believe in polarization inherently
1: oh okay, interesting,
0: okay, yeah, so what's wrong with the kind of polarization that's being described here? Well, the problem of
1: course, is that you're taking things that aren't of themselves right and wrong and describing them as right as wrong as right or wrong, and in worst case scenarios, you're taking things that are right and calling them wrong and vice versa and the techniques of the John Birch Society are still in use today. Um, fellow member of, uh, of our church, uh, Mr. Mike Lee, he's senator of Utah, um, was on Twitter a couple weeks ago saying that America is not a democracy, for which he got a lo- lot of blowback. But that we are not a mo- democracy meme dates back to the John Birch Society of trying to um, turn democracy into something that we don't want and a republic into something we do want. And like we were talking about earlier in the episode, as soon as you have definitions that you feel very strongly about, but no one else necessarily even agrees with those definitions, um, you can make anyone your enemy you want. And uh, when Mike Lay says we are not a democracy, he means it 100%, and it's something he's inherited from the John Birch Society. But what he's saying and what people are hearing are not the same, but when everybody says, what are you talking about, we are a democracy, we are now suddenly people he can dismiss because we don't even know what a democracy is and why it's bad. Um, The tools of the John Birch Society are still with us and they are still affecting dialogue um, here in in the United States and even between members of the church.
0: So if you want to know what QAnon is, we're gonna put a link in the video in the show notes to a video called "The Flat Earth so- about the Flat Earth Society.
1: Oh yes, I did um, watch that. That's good.
0: The f- by a by a by a, a YouTube channel called Folding Ideas. It's an hour long, so set some time aside to watch it. It is worth it. It takes you on a beautiful journey through um, flat Earth and geometry all the way down to the what on Earth is happening with QAnon. We'll we'll throw
1: in that Atlantic article about QAnon becoming a religion also.
0: Yeah, but the QAnon stuff is more, even more radical than what I'm worried about. I mean, I'm worried about them, like a lot, but even just more mainstream stuff, this uh, the polarization just between Democrats and Republicans right now is really bothering me. Um, And I have no idea what to do with it because I'm convinced that <laughs> some arguments really are just in one way or the other, right? Yeah. Like this. Let's take for example the thing that you said about food stamps. Yeah. I love the food stamp program. I think it's. I think it's vital. I think it's an important part of a social where uh, of a social w- welfare um, safety net, right? To help people um, in need, right? That that just seems cut and dry, right? But that statement polarizes me against other people who feel the opposite right yeah
1: it's it's been interesting i've been reading a lot about this the last i guess probably the last five years because i grew up hating hillary clinton because i grew up in red counties and that was the thing you were supposed to do and i never really right. thought about her seriously in any way until she was obviously going to be the uh, nominee of the Democrats. And for the first time in my life, I really started reading about her. Um, Around the same time, a fellow named Donald Trump, whom I had, uh, no one had taught me to feel this way. It just came from reading the newspaper as a child, which I did all the time. From about the age of 10, I had a pretty strong um, impression of him as a bad person. and so at the same time, you know, it's 2016, I said, well, you know what, I don't like either of these people. And it's based on um, a bias going way back into my childhood. It's time to really examine them and see who they are. And, um, and so I read about them a lot from good sources. And uh, my opinion on one um, evolved quite a lot. And my opinion on the other evolved quite a lot. But they didn't go in the same direction. One person, I now have a much higher opinion than i used to and the other person i have a much lower opinion of than i used to and it was not high to start with and um i forget how i was going to tie this into what you said last um
0: polarization
1: yeah so so like i something that the hatred of hillary clinton that's what it was um so the hatred of hillary clinton was not accidental um uh, newt gingrich who became um speaker of the house uh while while Clinton was president, Bill Clinton was president. He has spoken, uh, he spoke at the time and he's spoken now that he intentionally built polarization into the political system. Um, The house used to be much more bipartisan than it is now in the way they behaved. And he intentionally broke that apart because he realized that as long as you have, um, you know, we don't have a majority, because it hadn't had a Democratic majority for years until he came in. And he built this like sense of combativeness as a tool to get the first Republican majority, I think since the 40s. And that worked for him and he kept pushing it. And this, this idea of, of rhetorical violence rather than compromise has only grown since the 90s to the point where now um, it doesn't sound crazy To Like if I heard tomorrow that a militia had marched on the Capitol building, I could believe it. Why? Well, because it's already happened in more than one state. Um, We see this acceleration in a way that um, we talked earlier about how the John Birch Society largely relied on the First Amendment. Well, now people are are thinking like maybe the Second Amendment is the way to to fight these battles. Um,
0: It's so distressing because... I I I just genuinely love all these people that I associate with that are lifelong Republicans and that are have all these opinions that I really don't have that I just feel the opposite of and that cause me distress when I think about them. And I don't know what to do, Eric. It's driving me crazy. And yeah. I I like I'm just, I don't know how to resolve this conundrum. How can I? How can I continue to love my brother when, when he thinks so differently than me about fundamental aspects of society and how we should govern ourselves? We're both still Mormon. We both believe the Book of Mormon to be true. We both sustain the prophet. Um, should I give up (laughs) (laughs) and just eliminate, you know, influences that cause me distress? Or should I continue to forge these bonds and, you know, and try to defeat polarization? Let me put it in a different way. How do we combat the hatred of polarization? and yet not compromise our beliefs in what is right and wrong in politics?
1: It's a, it's a difficult question. There's a lot of research that shows that people are abandoning relationships, decades-long friendships, family members at increasing rates. Um, and that doesn't seem super Christian to me, but I also completely understand it. Um, On the other hand, the thing that McKay always said over and over and over again is the problem with communism is that it takes away people's free agency. And I think that that might be the tool to thinking about how we talk about people. If someone, when we're having a conversation about food stamps, to stick with that example, um, denies you the right to your opinion and says that you are wrong and perhaps evil and certainly un-American to hold the opinion you have. Um, They're trying to compromise your agency in order to get you to think as they think. And that, I think President McKay would say, is wrong. Um, He was a staunch Republican, McKay was. Uh, Hubie Brown was a staunch Democrat, and they worked closely together for a very long time. Um, You know, we can do that. I suppose. Seems really (laughs) hard. No, it certainly does. Um, when we when we get to the chapter about um, the education system, um, we're going to have to revisit a lot of this stuff because of the way that um, there were sort of uh, anti-liberal pogroms going on at BYU. <laughs> That's probably terrible phrasing. I shouldn't have said that. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, this this issue is not new and it's not ancient. Um, I was just looking over earlier today the Mormons second epistle to Moroni where he talks about the destruction the final destruction of their people and that's what happens when polarization reaches its final extreme ultimately you are wrong because you it has nothing to do with what you believe or anything else it's just that you yourself you as a person are wrong and at that point there's nothing to do but to destroy the sin and the sin is that person and that's when society can't sustain itself anymore
0: Ah, it's terrifying. Don't forget to vote. Yeah. Well, what okay. That's a terrible place to leave things. <laughs> <laughs> well, but we, we
1: only did the ch- we only did the second chapter for like two minutes um by talking about Johnson. I think. <laughs> um Well, give me some good news. Okay, how about this? Um Mormons love it when people in the world who are famous refer uh say something nice about the church or the president of the church. So I marked all the nice things the presidents of the church from Eisenhower through Johnson said about president McKay. Would you like to hear them?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hit me. Dwight
1: D. Eisenhower said David O. McKay is the greatest spiritual leader in the world. Uh, John F. Kennedy said, I have never met a man as ideally suited and qualified to be the spiritual leader of his people as David O. McKay. And Lyndon Johnson said a number of nice things about him. Um, It's hard to choose one, but the one that I felt was, I felt as time went on, like any sense of a a political subtext disappeared from these quotations. And so um, I want to read the last one. Um, I'm not meaning to knock Billy Graham by choosing this one, but he's mentioned. Um, I don't know what it is about President McKay, Lyndon B. Johnson said. I talked to Billy Graham and all of the others, but somehow it seems as though President McKay is something like a father to me. It seems as though every little while I have to write him a letter or something. And that isn't like um, trying to get the vote in Utah. That's just, it's just the way he felt. It's just the way he felt.
0: That's so great. See, this is the kind of, what I want What I really hope can happen in the future right is I don't want to say the word bipartisanship because I don't know what that word even means anymore but what I do I just want there to be a civil discourse (laughs) so that we can talk about something like the legalization of marijuana or the um, how to handle immigration or how to um, approach foreign policy without immediately having people shut down or argue. Like, I want there to be real discourse. One of my favorite sections in the West Wing, right, is there's this one seen. awesome scene. You've never seen the West Wing.
1: No. Okay. Well, there's one o- I find very oppressive. Like, I'm very interested in the West Wing and I'm quite certain that I would enjoy it, but the idea of starting the West wing is like the idea of starting war and peace. It's just such a big commitment. That's how I feel about. Yeah. TV. Eric. Yeah.
0: It's, it's really good.
1: <laughs> I hear it is balm to soothe the troubled soul in these troubled
0: times. It really is. Anyway, there's this one moment where the music swells and they've been having this argument about how to get the president um, to, you know, really like change, like maybe to, to like rejuvenate the message and everything. And at the end they have this wonderful upswelling of music and he says, we're gonna change and bring a level of discourse to this country. <laughs> hmm. And everybody's like really happy. It's like the biggest yeah. moment. And all it is is a statement of civility. Yeah, All it now- is is a, uh, a cry for just genuine discourse.
1: I can't tell you how many people I've heard say that this was Obama's big mistake is thinking that we can talk to the other side and they, they will be civil. Um, and I mean, that's the genius right. of Donald Trump, right? Is never give people a chance to be civil. Um, instead of discussing immigration, like separate babies from their mothers. Right. And then there's no chance for civil discourse and we don't have to bother with compromise. We just, and, and it's not the right way to do things. I I, I'm pretty sure there's got to be a better way. Let's go to fiction. Let's let's, uh-huh. let's live the West Wing, maybe.
0: <laughs> okay, good enough. Get out and vote. Um, we I are. do agree that communism was bad. Um, <laughs> I think that there's a lot of important issues out there, and you know, talk about good stuff.
1: You know, if communism is bad. And um, we really want to promote personal ownership. Maybe instead of just promoting the Dialogue Podcast Network, we should suggest people get themselves a subscription, pay a little money and get their own hardback, or not hardback, but, but uh, softback copies of the journal too. Maybe that would, uh, maybe that would <laughs> that's right swell the American feelings of ownership deep inside our
0: soul. <laughs> where are we going next time?
1: Oh my gosh, where should we go next time? We hinted at a couple possibilities earlier in the episode. I'm turning to the table of contents right now.
0: So we're going to be recording next time after the election. We will. We'll probably want to talk about something completely unrelated to politics. Yes.
1: Maybe ecumenical outreach, his relationship with other religions. That's quite, that's Uh, that's quite nice. And, um, okay. Not so much polarization, a lot more getting along.
0: All right. Chapter five ecumenical outreach and this, and it will, you know, I'm hoping that we can have a main conclusion in this episode of wanting to increase more civil civil discourse. Maybe you disagree with me on that.
1: (laughs) No, I I really think that we can't be the people, meaning like the nation we want to be until we can talk to each other again. Um, And there's no question that won't happen with Donald Trump. So um, I'm hoping that we can find route forward but like i was saying earlier that article i mentioned um we also can't really um we can't solve our deep political problems until we've solved some of the economic problems like marx wasn't 100 percent wrong as long as our wealth our, our income distribution is so lopsided people are going to be stressed out and looking to conspiracy theories for explanations of as to why life is the way it is we have to be a more christian people and i'm, I'm not saying that people need to be christian what i'm saying is the principles of treating people equally and caring for the poor, like, until we really address those notions, um, and you can call them liberal if you want to, but as long as some people are keens and some people are paupers, we are not going to have a democracy or whatever we actually are, Mr. Mike Lee.